Zara, I am so excited to talk about today's sponsor. It's the new film, Challenges. It's from the director of Call Me By Your Name, Luca Guadagnino, and stars and is produced by none other than our girl Zendaya. Yeah, you know I love her. You love her too. I love her so much. Zendaya plays Tashi Duncan, a former tennis prodigy turned coach who is married to a Grand Slam champion, currently on a losing streak. And if that's not bad enough, Tashi's strategy to help her husband break his curse sort of takes a surprising and awkward turn. Hmm, awkward indeed. Because now he must face off against his former best friend and Tashi's ex-boyfriend, Patrick. Zara, the tensions are running high. I know. Tashi's someone who makes no apologies for her game on and off the court. It's her game, her rules, but with her past and present colliding, Tashi must face reality and ask herself, what will it cost to win? Challenges is the sexy drama that everyone's talking about and it's definitely not one you want to miss. It's about passion, friendship and what happens when your past comes back to challenge you. You can grab a ticket from Tuesday the 26th. So grab your friends and get excited. I will be grabbing you and we are definitely going to be going to watch it. Oh, please. Thank you so much to Challenges for making this episode of Shameless possible. Barrymore, a professional actress from 11 months old, reached global movie stardom at seven as Gertie in E.T. But her troubled family history and absent parents would soon cast a dark shadow on her achievements. Welcome to Scandal from Shameless Podcast, the stories of the biggest celebrity controversies revisited. Hello, hello. Hello, hello. Guys, we are pumped about this one. Drew Barrymore has such a colourful story and my God, I'm excited to tell it. I have to say, I know that when we intro any Scandal series, we'll always say we're so excited to do this one and that is the truth because we (laughs) pick the scandals we cover. Sorry for loving our jobs. So we're naturally (laughs) excited to tell the story because we could pick any story. I was most floored by the details of this story, I think, than any scandal we've done in the last year, year and a half. Yeah, I think as well we've really seen Drew Barrymore re-emerge maybe in the last two years. She's got her talk show. She's got her beauty line that I can see. I think it's stocked in Chemist Warehouse, so I've been seeing that when I've been shopping for makeup recently. I really feel like she's a glowy, loved celebrity in the modern era. Yeah, and I think the images that I constantly see of her now, particularly on TikTok, are the ones of her on her talk show where she's often out of her seat. Yes. Sort of, I don't even know how to explain it, bending down, talking to her Her guests. guests really low and in a really loving, almost maternal, beautiful way. She is unlike anyone on TV, I think. She doesn't come across as someone who can easily be put into a box. Like no. even on her talk show, you see her engage in a way that the average talk show host doesn't. Like the average talk show host is very composed and poised. Drew really breaks through that and is like fully present in whatever moment she's in. And dripping with empathy. Dripping with yeah. empathy and warmth. And warmth, 1000%. <laughs> the so, true Barrymore fan club. I know, no, <laughs> I mean, I was a huge fan before we even did this. It's why we wanted to tell this story. But after reading this, I can only describe this story that we're about to tell as a complete and total miracle. Yeah, I completely agree. Guys, we cannot wait to tell it. But first, we need to rewind to the 1700s. (laughs) 
stick with us. Stick with us. Alrighty, Mitch. So Drew Barrymore comes from a long, long line of actors with the profession running in her family for at least 150 years. The first actors in Drew's family appear to be her fourth great grandparents who were both travelling actors born in the 1700s. Yeah, it's interesting to look back through Drew's family history because acting is not the only things her relatives have in common. Many of Drew Barrymore's relatives actually led interesting and extremely tumultuous lives. Her relatives had many marriages, affairs, unusual lifestyles, and sadly, many of them struggled with addiction too. Yeah, Drew's great-grandfather, Morris Barrymore, was a particularly colourful character. He was, of course, an actor who also owned a number of exotic animals. Remember, of course, this is the 1800s, so that (laughs) makes more sense in that context, I guess. He indulged reportedly in many affairs, and the myth goes that he nearly died in 1879 after winning a game of poker when the loser shot him in the stomach. Yeah, Morris's acting career came to an unfortunate and sudden end when, according to the New York Times, mid-performance at the Lion Palace Theatre, Morris suddenly dropped his lines and began to rave. Now, again, the story goes that he was so overcome with his own impromptu, nonsensical rant that he burst into tears. His son immediately took him to an asylum where he was diagnosed with an advanced case of syphilis, which could affect brain function. He died four years later after the incident. So then Morris fathered three children, and we know we're kind of going all the way down the family tree here, but I think this is so important in the context of this story. Mm. And those three children were Ethel, Lionel, and Drew's grandfather, who we're going to call John Senior for the yes. purpose of this episode. All three of Morris's children were popular and talented actors again, and John Senior in particular became a celebrated Shakespearean actor in the mid-1920s. Now, sadly, John Senior reportedly struggled with alcohol addiction throughout his life. His second wife, an actor herself called Delors, called him a hopeless alcoholic. And by the mid-1930s, his addiction had worsened so significantly that most film studios were unwilling to hire him even despite his fame and talent. Mm, In the year before Drew Barrymore's grandfather's death, he declared bankruptcy and the acting work he did manage to find was often based on self-parody. So essentially, the only work he could get at the end was making fun of himself and making himself the butt of the joke, which goes without saying is pretty sad that that's the way his career ended. He died in 1942 at the age of 60 due to liver disease and kidney failure. In his obituary, the Washington Post published at the time with the passing of the years and as his private life became more public, he became, despite his genius in the theatre, a tabloid character. Now, apparently when he died, he had just 60 cents to his name. He was a celebrity like Drew is. Yeah, Drew Barrymore herself wrote about her grandfather and the rumours surrounding his death in her 2016 memoir, Wildflower. She wrote, I would think about my grandfather all the time. 
My dad would talk about the legend of when my grandfather's body was stolen from the morgue by his friends. So the legend goes, they stole his body and in an attempt to give him one last party, they propped up John at a poker table with sunglasses on and a cocktail in hand and invited people over and had one last (laughs) hell of a soiree. This was the line of great loonies from which I come. They were talented, damaged, and I can't help but idealise them because it's all I have. Yeah, I'm not going to even touch on that story. It's a... (laughs) It's a lot going. It's a true story. (laughs) Now, before her grandfather's death, he fathered three children, including Drew's father, John Drew Barrymore, in 1932. Now, John Drew didn't really know his father. His parents separated when he was just a year and a half old. In fact, the Sydney Morning Herald wrote in his obituary in 2004, John Drew Barrymore only remembered seeing his famous father once. Now, John Drew as you've probably guessed, was also an actor. According to that same Sydney Morning Herald obituary, his mother, Dolores, tried to convince John not to pursue acting. It read, his mother tried to stop him from entering the family business by sending him to a military academy. However, he dropped out and signed a movie contract at age 17, taking on acting roles for which he was not prepared and which other family members found embarrassing. He got into repeated fights during his career and was arrested several times for drug use, drunkenness and spousal abuse. There's a lot going on here, hey? Yeah. And I think the thing that really strikes me is just how many people in her family were in the acting business. Like mm. I look at the long line of descendants in my family and none of us have done the same. Let me tell you, there are no podcasters <laughs> in my kind of grandparents' line. But for them, I do wonder if by the point of it being a few generations of actors that everybody felt like it was the only thing they could and should do. Yeah, and I wonder as well, everyone was clearly growing up in such an atmosphere of chaos. If chaos is all you know... Maybe you crave that the older you get. The idea of becoming, what, an accountant doesn't seem as alluring because you've seen the chaos and the drama of being an actor. I also think at this point in time, and perhaps not that much has changed, it is the kind of industry where you can only really crack in if you know somebody. Yeah, It's so insular and was at this time, so you might as well use those connections. In her memoir, Drew Barrymore wrote of her father, he had been a promising actor when he was young. He had been gorgeous and dynamic, but he threw his career away in total self-sabotage. So that's Drew's dad. But what about her mum? Well, Drew Barrymore's mum went by the name Jade Marco until her marriage to John Drew Barrymore when she became Jade Barrymore. Yeah, Jade was born in 1946 in a displaced persons camp in West Germany to Hungarian refugees. In 1950, when Jade was four, her family relocated to Pennsylvania and as a young woman, Drew's mum moved to Los Angeles to pursue... You guessed it, a career in acting. In Los Angeles, Jade worked as a manager at the famous comedy club, The Comedy Store. She also worked at rock music venue, The Troubadour. Then in about 1970, she met John Drew Barrymore for the very first time. Now, the story of how Drew Barrymore's parents met and fell in love is a little hazy. Drew herself admitted that she doesn't exactly know how it happened in that memoir, Wildflower. She wrote, I never even had a dinner with both of my parents. I never knew the whole story of how my parents met and got together. They most likely met at the comedy store or the troubadour. They had a tumultuous few years together and then separated before I was born. For her part, 
Jade had this to say when asked about how she and John first met. She said, I saw him across the room. I just caught my breath and so did he. It was just that electrifying moment. And then when I heard the name Barrymore, I immediately thought, spoiled brat, he can get any woman he wants. Which of course was true. So I wasn't going to make it too easy for him. And that's how we began. He was one of the most striking, charismatic people I'd ever seen in my whole life. Yeah. The through line here also seems not just to be acting, but also this sort of electric charisma. Toxic love even. Yeah. To- like toxicity, electricity, charisma. Yeah. And then a whole lot of other things. It makes me think all these mentions of he was so beautiful and he was so charismatic. I'm like, I'd rather be dull and ugly. (laughs) Also slow love. Slow. We love a slow, gentle love. Like gentle love. Not for scandal episodes. No. We love a fast love for scandal episodes. For sure. Now, what we do know for sure is that Jade and John got married in 1971 when John was 39 and Jade was 25. Look, as we said, things are hazy. They separated sometime between 1970. 71 and 1975, although the divorce didn't officially go through until 1984. This marriage was Jade's first and John's third. Now, Drew Barrymore's dad did have four children in his lifetime. I'm going to read you the names and they are a little confusing because there is some overlap. He's got John Blythe Barrymore, Blythe Barrymore, (laughs) Brahma Jessica Barrymore, and Drew Barrymore. Now, <laughs> even though he himself is called John Drew and you've got a John Barrymore and a Drew Barrymore and a John Blythe and a, and Blythe, a Blythe Barrymore. <laughs> yeah. he, I, he likes what he likes. Sort of like a Venn diagram of kids' names and they yeah. all sort of have to cross over in the middle at some point. From our research, it doesn't seem at least from our perspective that Drew has much, if any, of a relationship with her half-siblings. Speaking in an interview about leaving John while she was pregnant with Drew, Jade said, The problems did not surface at first because all you saw was John's charm. Eventually, the negative aspects started seeping through the cracks. Because he had problems with drugs and alcohol, I realised I can't be a mother to Drew and be a mother and nurturer to him, so I made the decision that I would have to leave him and he got very violent when I tried to leave. Mm. It's so true, though, at that point, when you're a parent for the first time, as if you're turning around and looking at your partner and thinking, well, I have to now parent the both of you. Mm, No. You can't do that. I've got a baby now. My attention has to be in one place. Jade did successfully leave John and Drew was born on February 22, 1975 in Culver City, California. Now, Jade raised Drew as a single mother and continued her jobs at the comedy store and the like while also occasionally playing small parts in film and TV. Jade even got her daughter into acting before Drew turned one. Despite that, she says she wasn't always keen for Drew to pursue the family profession. (laughs) This is so interesting. There's a quote that read, I was very reluctant at first to get Drew involved in acting for two specific reasons. One, it's a very, very difficult and often heartbreaking profession. And second of all, I wanted my own career. How reluctant (laughs) can you possibly be if your child's in that profession before they can even walk or talk? Jade, what the fuck? As, especially acknowledging that it's a very, very difficult and often heartbreaking profession and then saying, oh, 11 months old, time to go, kid, let's my, do this. He's my blob of a child. I'm just going to push them into it. Truly, at 11 months old, Drew starred in a puppy food commercial during the audition for the part. The puppy that also went on to star in the commercial nipped her. <laughs> and instead of crying, baby Drew 
And a reminder, 11-month-old Drew <laughs> threw her head back and laughed. The casting agents were relieved and impressed with her and she booked the part. Yeah. God, if only I knew this is what it <laughs> to be a movie star. Be a bit chill at 11 months old. <laughs> a former agent of Drew Barrymore's was later interviewed for a documentary about her life and they said Jade was completely invested in wanting her child to have a major career. She wanted everything and I think she projected her hopes and dreams onto Drew and I think that was a huge pressure on the little girl gotta say that quote certainly adds up more than jade's one does for sure from 1976 to 1979 drew was cast in a handful of small commercial and tv roles her first credited movie role came in 1980 when she was just five years old she was cast as margaret jessup in the sci-fi body horror film altered states it was a pretty small role but also to be fair <laughs> what a small role she drew. wasn't a star yet but she was only five although altered states was drew's first credited film role her big break came a year later because when she was six years old she was cast as gertie in steven spielberg's et the extraterrestrial but guys we're going to tell you all about that after the break Alrighty, Mish. So by 1981, a six-year-old Drew Barrymore attended what turned out to be the most significant audition of her life so far. But it actually wasn't an audition for E.T. Drew actually originally auditioned for another Steven Spielberg film called Poltergeist. Yeah, after speaking to Drew during her audition, Steven Spielberg and his team realised that she wasn't right for that film. She was right for another film they were working on called E.T., in a press interview around this time, Drew told the story in her own words. Have a listen to this. And just a heads up, the Kathleen that is referenced in this clip was a producer on E.T. First they interviewed me for Poltergeist. And then they said... That's another film by the same director. Yes, yeah. Steven Spielberg. Mm -hmm. And he and so he said he's... He, She's nothing like the girl on the strip, script, so he, Kathy Kennedy said, well, maybe we could interview her for E.T. Mm. And so they interviewed me for E.T. and they said that she's, she's exactly the person who I wanted. So cute to hear a little voice around this time. So sweet, but also I think quite telling and really important for perspective to understand how young she was. Sweet and scary. Looking back on the audition in her first biography, Little Girl Lost, published in 1990, Drew wrote, I was being a total geek about everything, answering his questions with any goofy answers I could think of, but of course then I thought I was being the epitome of cool and grace under pressure. <laughs> I mean, I kind of think... That is the epitome of cool and grace at that age if you have so much charisma again yeah. and spark. She was precocious. That you can have conversations with adults. Yeah. Steven Spielberg himself said that it was Drew's imagination that really caught his attention. Looking back 40 years after E.T.'s release, he said, Drew was really something. 
Her ET interview was the best because when she walked into the office, she didn't want to talk about the movie. She didn't even care what the film was about. She wanted to talk to me about her punk band she was forming. A <laughs> six-year-old. I know. In her memoir, Wildflower, Drew wrote about how her famous scream was the final tipping point for Stephen to give her the job. She wrote, the final audition, he wanted to see if I could scream. I probably said something to the effect of, watch this. And so they turned the tape on and I watched the wheels of audio go round and round and I waited for Stephen's signal. I screamed. I screamed so loud that I broke the device and the tape stopped. Stephen smiled and that was it. A few days later, the phone call came. You got the job. Is that possible to break a tape? Did I mean, you scream so loud? A bit too much of a digi-girl myself. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure. It is pretty remarkable as well. And I know this probably goes without saying, but I'm going to say it, that at seven years old, one of the major films you book is with Steven Spielberg. Mm. Like there are actors that would go their entire career, famous, successful actors who will never be able to do that. Looking back on the casting, Jade said, Drew was exactly what Steven was looking for. He wanted someone who could hold her own with the older boys in the cast and yet have a vulnerability and a sweetness to her. She had the ingredient to make you believe that E.T. was real. E.T. not only marked the real beginning of Drew's acting career, It also marks the beginning of an incredibly important relationship in Drew's life. Steven Spielberg actually went on to become her godfather and really served as a father figure to Drew during her early years. Speaking on the Drew Barrymore show about their relationship, Drew said, He's the first person that cared about me. Steven taught me that a parent is supposed to make you feel bad when you're not being good. I love my parents, I really do. But Steven taught me how to be a parent. If you're embarrassed about your behavior around a parent, that's a good thing. And every time I was doing something good or right, I would always think about how Steven would think or feel about it. I lived to make him proud. It's a very sweet quote, but then also not sweet at all if you're not having that relationship with your own parents. It might it makes me really like Steven Spielberg. For sure. In E.T., Drew played Gertie Taylor, the precocious younger sister to Elliot Taylor, who was played by Henry Thomas. The film was originally inspired by Steven's own experience as a child who created an imaginary alien friend to keep him company during his parents' divorce. I feel like such an idiot. But I just sort of thought, I don't know if this is worth saying or not, but whatever, I've started. I thought E.T. was sort of like Star Wars, one of those films that's been alive for hundreds of years. Star Wars hasn't even probably been alive for hundreds of years. I can't believe this was the original E.T. I just thought E.T. was just like remake after remake after remake. Sorry. Because it's so iconic. Have you seen E.T.? No. Oh, oh my God. That's worse than you not seeing The Lion King. You, you haven't seen E.T. No. Oh, my. I didn't. Sarah need, McDonald. I didn't need to see it for research for this, by the way. Oh I watch clips on YouTube. I'm a little flabbergasted that you've never seen E.T. I didn't have a word with Trish and David McDonald. I don't know what movies I watched when I was younger. I didn't watch anything. None. Clearly. None. By all accounts, the E.T. set was a really special and safe space for Drew to work. The children on set attended school classes, which was a legal requirement for child actors. And the film was shot in roughly chronological order. And that meant that the crew and the children kind of all knew what was going on. And the children could have really genuine reactions to the developments. Yeah, 
Stephen also tried to make the E.T. puppet feel as real for the children as possible. And as the youngest actor on set, Drew in particular reportedly developed this very sweet relationship with E.T. Speaking about this years later, Stephen said, On the second or third day of shooting, Drew had a secret she wanted to share with me. She took me by the hand and she led me around the wall to four E.T. operators sitting around waiting for action and said, Who invited them here? And I just said, well, they're E.T.'s friends and they're really helping him with his English and his gestures. And Drew did not understand that there was a connection between E.T. and the operators. She absolutely never wanted to know that anybody was making (laughs) E.T. come to life except E.T. himself. So cute. E.T. premiered in the U.S. in June 1982 when Drew was seven. The film was a runaway success. Not that Zara would know. Oh, apparently not. It won four Academy Awards and was the highest grossing film of the 1980s it made 792 million dollars at the box office and i think this is the most impressive part it made that much money off of a budget of 10 million dollars absolutely crazy as you can imagine this is going to catapult drew and her castmates to absolute stardom Mm. i mean drew at seven years old was suddenly properly in the spotlight reflecting on her sudden fame a few years later in a documentary she said we were on every blanket and tea set and comb and brush in america it wasn't just a movie anymore all of a sudden you couldn't eat a meal without someone coming up to you and trying to embrace life on that level was hard being as young as we were but i know we did it really well upon the release of the film drew was in high demand for media appearances and interviews one of the most memorable chats she did around this time was her interview on the tonight show with johnny carson now I don't know if you guys remember this. We'll definitely put it up on our TikTok account. But a seven-year-old Drew walked out onto the set in a hot pink dress with a matching ribbon in her hair. She slipped and fell when she first (laughs) walked out, but quickly recovered and took her seat across from Johnny. It is an amazing thing to watch. You can tell from this interview that Drew was a kid who spent a lot of time around adults. Like she was quite cheeky. She was comfortable. She was very talkative with Johnny Carson. She didn't seem nervous at all she even took out a set of fake teeth that she had in which was sort of filling a gap between her big teeth on the show yeah we have a clip of this and we want to play it for you that's just so your teeth kind of line up and yeah but they kill yeah doesn't it feel very good no they don't you want to keep it out then we'll just talk without it sure yeah okay just clip it Now, don't forget that when you leave now. That's not polite to leave teeth on somebody else's desk. So she literally takes these fake teeth out and then pops them on, on Johnny's the desk. desk. It's so <laughs> great. It's so funny. In the middle of talking about E.T., Drew also stopped mid-conversation to ask, can I say hi to Stephen? When Johnny told her to go ahead, she grinned at the camera and said, hi, Stephen, I love you. <laughs> In late 1982, Drew Barrymore became the youngest person to ever guest host Saturday Night Live. In the show's opening, Drew recited a joke about her family's troubled past. She said, I'm a Barrymore more get me a drink and make it a double as the audience laughed drew visibly counted to three before shouting the show's tagline live from new york it's saturday night it's a funny joke at the time but not particularly funny when you know where the story is going hey Mm. it's hard to swallow it's worth noting that of all the children cast in et drew appeared to be the one who was making the biggest waves, even though she was the youngest person in the cast and not the main character. 
the public and the industry fell in love with this little girl. And I think mm. it had to be because she was the youngest but with such a big personality. That is quite surprising and quite shocking to see sometimes. What's not to love yeah. kind of thing. In July 1984, when Drew was nine, Vanity Fair ran a profile piece on her with the headline, The Last of the Barrymores. Writer Daphne Davies shadowed Drew and her mother Jade for a week and followed the duo to the mall, dance class and the Hard Rock Cafe. Now, this feature was accompanied by a sweet but kind of eerie photo shoot of Drew looking very serious in ball gowns and high heels and it kind of gives us a real insight into how the world viewed this nine-year-old girl at the time there was a quote that read when drew as gertie beamed her large hazel eyes on the eponymous alien and let out an electrifying high sea screech the barrymore tradition was reborn yeah the article also made note of drew's relationship with steven spielberg although they kind of made it really weird this is how the piece read Rumours abound that almost billionaire bachelor Spielberg, who gave Drew an arcade-sized Miss Pac-Man game for Christmas, is waiting for his leading lady to grow up so he can propose. Why was the media like this? Like, I remember we talked about this a lot with our Olsen twins scandal. Why were we so hellbent or why were journalists so hellbent on sexualizing literal children? I remember even a decade or two later, it was still happening to the Olsons. It feels like this was happening for decades unchecked. It's so troubling to me. Writer Daphne Davies compared Drew to fellow child actress Brooke Shields by writing, but whereas Shields was a merchandised movie princess with little acting talent. Brutal. We're talking about kids here, but sure. Barrymore is a born and bred Tinseltown queen with a mind sharp enough to run an international cartel founded upon her image. She plans soon to license Drew, the fragrance of the first child movie superstar, along with a line of dresses and maybe a doll. Yeah, this piece also made note of the industry's expectations for Drew. A line read, she will be bigger than Tatum O'Neill and better than Meryl Streep. Now that quote came from a chairman of a board of a major studio. So there's this kid with these like adults just demanding the world of her. Yeah, and this sort of studio exec was hoping at this point and made it clear at this point that he wanted to lure Drew into a three-picture, $5 million deal. Again, we're talking about a nine-year-old back in the 80s. It's insane to me. Another interesting section of this article includes a quote from Jade, Drew's mum, about how Drew is, and I quote, an old soul. Here's how it read. On the way to San Fernando Valley to show me their brand new two-bedroom house with a pool and sauna in Sherman Oaks, on the other side of Beverly Hills, Jade Barrymore, who is in her 30s, gushes non-stop about how wonderful Drew is. Steven Spielberg once told me that my daughter is an old soul and I have to agree with him. One minute, Drew is a playful nine-year-old talking to her dolls and stuffed animals and the next she's 29 or an old woman of 75. Mm. Feels like quite a cop-out from a parent who's put their child in this industry to say, well, the only reason I've done it is because her personality is such an old soul. She might be nine, but she has the maturity of a 29-year-old and that's why we're doing it. I knew when she was 11 months old that she was an old soul who could hack it with like the big kids in the movie industry. It's a cop-out for sure. Yeah, and it's also one of those things where it's like you put her in this industry. She's probably very good at seeming like an old soul because you put her in scenarios where she was only ever communicating with adults. She has no other choice. You haven't given her a childhood. Exactly. As a child, Drew obviously spent most of her time either on movie sets or with her mother. Now, she lived with her mother and her mother was also her manager. 
But every now and then she would see her dad, John Drew. In her memoirs, she described her father as, I don't really know where to begin other than to say he simply wasn't a dad. He was this mythical creature, part unicorn, part violent storm. And although he separated from my mum when she was pregnant, I somehow knew how to forgive him. It's as if I could grasp as a kid that this horse was so wild he couldn't be pinned down. And even if he could, I'm not sure you would want him around. He was the kind of man you saw in small doses. She went on, my father never had an apartment, no address to send a letter, no phone to call him if the mood struck. He didn't even wear shoes. Even this crazy man's feet had to be free. He would just show up at my mum's duplex and talk some crazy nonsense, usually wreak havoc on the joint and then take off again. Yeah, she also wrote about being caught in the middle of her parents' antics. She wrote, my parents fought like pathetic poets, but really my mum had just made a terrible choice in my dad and he wanted to be worshipped from afar without the dare of an expectation. I would just sit there on the other side of the room and count the minutes until he would disappear again. Now, John Drew was not only completely uncontactable, he would often sweep into Drew's life completely unannounced and unexpected. There was another quote in her memoir that really stood out to us. She wrote, Then he would show up again at a random Christmas dinner at a friend's house, where my mum had taken me so that we might be somewhere more traditional and full of life. We would be having dinner, and then I would hear the sounds of chaos and emotion coming from the other room. He would then storm in and start ranting, and would eventually have to be escorted out by the hosts. He would do the same thing at a random restaurant. I don't even know how he found us. He would come crashing in, and then a bunch of people would rally and literally take him outside yep i was never really showing off to anyone pointing that's my dad it was more just watching in awe as detailed in a 1990 book little girl lost drew recalled an occasion where john pestered jade to let him babysit drew for a day Jade reluctantly relented and Drew spent the day with him. She wrote, We turned on the TV and started talking and, like always, he got kind of weird. He turned off the lights and lit a bunch of candles. At the same time, he was hanging around with this guy who worked on the series Kung Fu and he started to show me how to do some kicks. He'd whip around and, bam, smack a kick at me. She went on, Most of the time he'd miss, but sometimes he'd hit me. In the arm, the stomach, the head, he didn't seem to care that it hurt. But I wouldn't cry. The more I continued, the more pissed off I got. Why do you have to cause everyone so much pain? I screamed. You're always hurting everyone. He stopped and came towards me. There was a crazed look in his eyes. What do you know about pain? He challenged. She went on. Then he took my hand and stuck it into the candle flame. It burned and I started to cry. My cries only seemed to make my dad angrier. He let go of my hand and thrust his own into the flame. Don't ever be afraid of fire, he scolded. It's all in your mind, Drew. I cried holding my burned hand and he left the room, probably to go get a drink. Like words kind of fail me when it comes to this level of... It's very sad. I don't even have the words for a man like this. Like not just abusive and depraved, but like completely acting outside the bounds of the social contract. Yeah, for her dad, like the one that's essentially put here to protect her. Regardless of this troubled upbringing, by the early 1980s, Drew had some seriously impressive acting credits under her belt. She filmed Stephen King's Firestarter. She also filmed Irreconcilable Differences in which she played a young girl who was seeking to divorce her parents. Mm. In 1984, she was nominated for her first Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actress 
actress for her performance in Irreconcilable Differences. At the time, a film critic by the name of Roger Ebert praised Drew's performance in the film. He wrote, Barrymore still has that slight lisp and the air of preternaturally concentrated seriousness. She is the right actress for this role precisely because she approaches it with such grave calm. During filming for Firestarter, Drew became close with the author Stephen King. In her first memoir, she wrote, people such as him appreciated me. It meant so much to me when someone like Stephen, whom I saw as a fatherly sort, complimented or hugged me. At those times, I felt fulfilled and loved. On the set, Stephen and I would talk for hours about music, TV shows, movies, and even things as ordinary as who makes the best hamburgers. Interested in everything, he was a good example of why I loved making movies. Shortly after wrapping filming for Firestarter, Stephen King asked Drew if she would star in his next book adaptation called Cat's Eye, and she agreed. Yeah, it wasn't all fun though, as I'm sure people can imagine. Drew was working really hard, spending long hours shooting and trying to complete her schoolwork. She wrote, I was always pleading for a day off. The work was a strain. Most of Cat's Eye was shot at night. I'd go to sleep very late, then wake up late in the day and go off to three hours of school in the afternoon. It was a tough schedule. I was so tired that much of the time it was a complete blur. Mm, Working from the age of just 11 months old meant that Drew didn't get a chance to be a kid. In her second memoir, she wrote, The worst kind of audition room was the one where I could tell I did well, but at the end of the day, there was just someone else who did better than me or was more right, and I would go home feeling so high, and yet I would get the call that the part was going to someone else, and they just said, thank you anyway. For a kid, those are hard calls. Rejection is a lesson you usually learn later in life. After Firestarter wrapped, things began to change for Drew quite dramatically. She was growing up and even though she was still a little kid, she was no longer the same little kid that everyone knew from E.T., the kid that the world fell in love with. From the age of like nine or ten years old, Drew began to make a name for herself elsewhere, namely Mish, the party scene. Yeah, by the time she was 13 years old, Drew Barrymore was regularly using cocaine. Guys, the story of that, how this talented young actress spiralled in her teen years, will be in part two. This has been an incredible ride, an interesting ride, a troubling ride. Thank you for coming on it with us. Yeah, if you want to listen to part two right now as well, you know how to. If you're on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, just subscribe to Shame More, the subscription arm of Shameless Podcasts, where you can binge all the parts of a scandal series at once. There is so much still left to cover. We can't wait to do it. A big thank you as always to our researcher Eilish Gilligan and we will be back in your ears on Thursday. Bye. Shameless Media. This podcast was recorded on Wurundjeri land. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land.